popular music, we're still talking about it on episode four of the Mr. Sensational Gene Ovega podcast. Get the- Broadcasting to you from Santa Rosa, California, by way of the Icy Robots Radio Network, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, prepare to witness the strength of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast. Hey everybody, it is I, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, back for episode number four of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast on the Icy Robots Radio Network. Thanks for letting me get all up in your ears again today for about 50 or 60 minutes or so as I broadcast to you from my home in beautiful Santa Rosa, California. Once again, the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast is coming to you by way of the IC Robots radio network. Head on over to Facebook and like the IC Robots Facebook page. You can keep up to date on all the happenings with all the fine shows our network has to offer. You can also visit my website, genovega.wordpress.com, where I post episode notes for all of my shows. There's also a link there to my own Facebook page. Feel free to send me a friend request. All friend requests accepted. Uh, You can also follow me on Twitter at SensationalVega. And last but not least, if you are enjoying what you're hearing from the IC Robots Radio Network please visit supportthereport.com, where for as little as $1 a month, you can help us keep our shows on the air. IC Robots Radio Network is a listener-funded enterprise, so please visit supportthereport.com and do what you can to help keep the lights on. And with that housekeeping out of the way, now on to today's show. Have you ever seen a show with fellas on the mic with one minute rhymes that don't come out right? They bite. They never write. That's not polite. Am I lying? No, you're quite right. Well, tonight on the very mic, you're about to hear. We swear the, the best, best star rappers of the year. So, so, Sherry, yell, scream, bravo. Also, if you didn't know, this is called the show. Okay, housekeeping and PSAs out of the way. Let's get on with this episode. Uh, This is episode four. It's going to be a continuation of what we talked about in episode three, which is a look back at my history uh, being a fan of popular music in the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, and possibly beyond. Last episode, we just got through the beginnings of my time as a fan of music in the 80s, kind of my interest in the early days of MTV and hair metal. Uh, didn't get much further than that, so hopefully we'll make some more headway on this episode. Before we get back into that conversation, though, I'd just like to mention a few notes about things that have been going on around here in the world of Mr. Sensational Gino Vega. First off, last weekend was the WWE Royal Rumble, and I bring that up um, because, as you may know, I'm a huge wrestling fan, both American wrestling like WWE and kind of some American independent wrestling. And I'm also a really big fan of Japanese professional wrestling. Uh, I try not to talk about wrestling too much on this show because it can be a very niche and divisive topic. Some people would love to talk about wrestling all day long. Some people despise wrestling and will probably be turning this show off right now because I'm even mentioning it. Um, so I, I try not to make it a huge point of focus. There are plenty of wrestling focused podcasts out there. Um, should you choose to listen to one, uh, wrestling observer radio being 
the first and foremost among them, in my opinion. Uh, but I'm bringing this up more just as a um, trying to acquaint you more with who Mr. Sensational Gino Vega is. Royal Rumble is usually one of my favorite wrestling shows of the year. Um, I generally have people over to watch it. I did have some people over to watch it last weekend. Um, part of what makes it so much fun, especially in a group watching environment, is that the structure of the Royal Rumble match, which is usually the main match on the show, is that you have um, this battle royal match of, like this year it was 30 participants, some years it's a little bit more, but uh, 30 participants this year, and uh, the participants are staggered, and I think it's it's two-minute intervals. I mean, they're not really anyway because it's wrestling, and they just kind of tell the guys to run out there whenever they really want them to run out, but theoretically the storyline is it's supposed to be, I think, two-minute or three-minute intervals. I, sh- I really should know this, but uh, numbers are my strong suit, as you may soon find out. Um, as, as the episodes go by of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. But anyhow, um, wrestlers come out at in inter- intervals. So you start off with, with the first guy comes out and then a second guy comes out and then it's just the two of them together in the ring for about two minutes or whatever. And, and the goal is to eliminate um, opponents by throwing them over the top rope of the ring um, so that they land with both feet touching the ground outside. Then once that happens to a, a participant, they're gone. They got to go back to the back. So start off with two people. Um, and then a third comes down and a fourth comes down and then maybe the, one of those four gets eliminated, but then another one comes down. So there's four again. And then the, uh, uh, another person comes in. And so at any given time, maybe you'll have like uh, certain times you'll have like two or three people in the ring. Other times you may have like 20 people in the ring and, uh, there's always the anticipation of, a excuse me, <coughs> dealing with a little bit of a cold here. So I apologize, but, um, you deal with the suspense and the anticipation of, uh, Who's going to come out when? Who might be some uh, surprise or mystery participants? Like sometimes uh, they'll debut like a new star from a different company at the Royal Rumble who's just signed with WWE, or they'll bring back you know a legend from years past, or they have a celebrity. Like I think not this year, but last year Shaquille O'Neal was in the Royal Rumble, if I remember correctly. Um, actually, that might have been the Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal at WrestleMania, but whatever. The, Generally, that, that's the idea with the Royal Rumble. So it's, as you might imagine, it's a lot of fun to have people over and watch. Even this is a show that kind of translates well, even to people who could give a crap less about wrestling. You know, it's just kind of fun. It's fun, festive atmosphere. It's always one of my favorite shows of the year. Um, this year was all right. Um, some people online liked it more than I did. I didn't hate it or anything, but they, they didn't really go heavy. There were no um, there were no big debuts or returning legends or surprise celebrities or anything on this year's Rumble. And that's pretty much what I watched the Rumble for, what I live for at the Rumble. So the lack of that doesn't really work for me. You know, I, I, I wasn't really feeling that. But, you know, some people don't care as much about that element. To me, that is just kind of what makes the Rumble the Rumble. But um, I mentioned this, A, just because the, the Rumble's a big yearly event in, in, in the life of Mr. Sensational Gino Vega. But it was, it was bringing back kind of a funny memory that kind of goes back with some of the, the reminiscing that we do here on this show, which is I was thinking back to um, Royal Rumbles of years past. I think uh, this was the 30th Royal Rumble, so it's been around for 30 years. So I was 10 when it started. And I think this memory that I have, I was probably about 13. In fact, I'm positive that that's the case because um, – this was would have been the Royal Rumble that happened in 1989. Anyway, I was in junior high school at the time, seventh grade. And back then, my wrestling viewing consisted of pretty much just watching 
sort of like the pay-per-view Barker channels uh, that they had on cable, you know, the channel that would just show kind of infomercials for upcoming pay-per-views over and over and over again. So um, I would watch the um, hype infomercial deals for the upcoming WWF pay-per-view events because my parents were never going to buy me, uh, let me buy the the pay-per-views themselves. So I, I would just watch these commercials and then kind of um, – get a sense of what was happening. And then I would kind of, um, imagine the event in my mind. Um, and there was no, back then too, um, I didn't really have a way of, um, knowing the results, uh, quickly or anything. I wouldn't find out what actually happened until quite some time later. Once the events got released on uh, VHS from Coliseum home video, um, you know, there wasn't, I, I didn't have access to the wrestling observer at the time. There was no internet. Um, so there's just, just a lot of imagination, a lot of guys on TV screaming about their upcoming matches, then me imagining how those matches might go down, um, interspersed between commercials for like, uh, ordering John Claude Van Damme's cyborg movie on pay-per-view. But, um, in seventh grade, um, a cool development happened because at my new junior high school, Herbert Slater junior high school, it's now Herbert Slater middle school. Back then it was junior high school. There were a pair of twin brothers who went to the school, and their names were Charvin and Charvis. And Charvin and Charvis, uh, they were identical twins, if I recall correctly, and they had either a dad or an uncle that was kind of trying to push them to be sort of like a performing act. Like at talent shows, they would always sing and dance and just kind of doing some like new edition type, type stuff. Um, you know, but they were twins. That was the whole gimmick. Um, and I remember like they weren't great singers. They were, they had a, had a good choreographed like dance routine going on, but, uh, uh, I could tell the adult, whether he was their dad or their uncle just really had high hopes for Charvin and Charvis, uh, their performing career. And I do not know whatever became of it, but in any case, we were in seventh grade together and they were both big wrestling fans. But then I think also some of the adults in their family were into wrestling too. So these guys would actually get the pay-per-views. Like they were the only people I knew back then who actually got to see anything beyond commercials for pay-per-views and the the occasional Saturday night's main event or whatever else WWF would show um, on television to entice you to buy pay-per-views. These guys got to watch the actual events. So they would show up the day after a pay-per-view and these guys would just be giving out results, results and commentary too, because they were super into it. So they would not only tell you who won the match, but like what they thought about it, what they thought might happen next. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, I remember this one particular January coming to school the day after the uh, 89 Royal Rumble, and they were just there was just a buzz in, in the air, just a, a, a electric currents uh, at Herbert Slater Jr. High School. And in the midst of all this electricity, Charvin and Charvis were just standing there, just glowing, emanating energy. And I, I ran up to him and I was like, what happened? What happened? And they're like, last night at the Rumble, last night at the Rumble. Number one was Axe. He went down to the ring. And then number two, number two was Smash. And so the, the significance of this, to, to those of you listening who are like, what the F is this guy even talking about? Um, Axe and Smash were, were um, the two members of a very popular uh, wrestling tag team at the time in WWF known as Demolition. And Demolition were one of my favorite teams of all time. Uh, they kind of wore like black leather sort of bondage gear and they had sort of King Diamond uh, face paint and um, came to, you know, they, they were they were really a knockoff because A, they were a knockoff of another team um, called the Road Warriors and B, both Road Warriors and Demolition borrowed heavily from um, the Mad Max movies. So that's kind of what the look uh, came from because they'd come down to the ring. 
um, with their bondage gear, but they'd also be wearing kind of these hoods that were similar to like some of the Mad Masks uh, characters. Um, and uh, they were just, they were this mean, bad tag team that came down to a heavy metal song by Rick Derringer and just like destroyed the competition. They were like a dominant team for a long time. They were managed by one of my favorites of all time, uh, Mr. Fuji, who I've talked about on this show before. And um, so these guys were just synonymous with being a team. So with this situation with the Rumble, you had one of the members, Axe, drawing number one and having to go out there first waiting to find out who his opponent at number two that he's going to start off with is going to be, and it's his partner, Smash. And we'd never seen them in this kind of a situation before. And I guess according to Charvin and Charvis, uh, what happened was, you know, Smash came down and they sort of looked at each other for a minute and there was this tension about what are they going to do? Are they just going to kick back and wait for number three to come out and turn on him? Or what are they going to do? And they just started wailing on each other. And that it was just, that was such an amazing mind-blowing, electrifying moment in WWF history. It's the kind of thing, it's it's those moments that I, I live for as a wrestling fan. It's those moments that make wrestling something really special when it's firing on all cylinders, when it has you emotionally involved. Um, you know, don't get it twisted. A lot of a lot of wrestling fans nowadays want to believe it's all about the flips and the somersaults. And, nah. Axe and Smash were two, like, barely mobile guys that just kind of lumbered around clubbing each other. And that was a bigger moment. And I, and I didn't, hadn't even seen that moment. That was a bigger moment having that told to me than watching uh, um, some dude with six-pack abs doing a triple somersault off of a top rope. I mean, that can be cool, too, in its own way. But it's emotional investment for me is what wrestling is all about. How, however they get there with that uh, emotional investment and emotional involvement, um, that that can vary. But if you're not emotionally involved, it's just a couple guys in underwear pretending to fight each other. Um, if you are emotionally involved, it's, it's Shakespeare, you know, it's, it's the greatest thing ever. So anyway, just wanted to give a quick shout out to the Royal Rumble, a quick shout out to Charvin and Charvis, wherever they may be, uh, moving right along with one other piece of business, one other piece of news here. Um, just a few days ago marked the 20th anniversary of the video game Final Fantasy VII. And Final Fantasy VII was a very important, very landmark, very iconic video game in my own gaming history. It was a game that in a lot of ways brought me back into the world of video games. And it was a game that really um, solidified and entrenched my own um, aesthetic preferences when it comes to video games. Um, Now, when Final Fantasy VII came out, I was I would have been 20 years old. I'm 40 now. It was 20 years ago. And I had kind of gotten too busy for video games. I'd gotten busy. Um, you know, I played in my band, The Invalids, and that took a lot of my time. I listened to a lot of music, which uh, eventually we'll get back to talking about here today on episode four. Um, and I was probably the most social point of my life. I had a lot of friends. I wanted to go out and do things. Um so I didn't have a lot of time to play video games. Um, when I was 20, um, yeah, I had moved out of my parents' house too. And um, at the time that Final Fantasy would have come out, I did not have a current generation uh, video game system. Yeah, I'm remembering now. Um, 
Ms. Sensational and I were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time. We lived together in an apartment. I had my Sega Genesis on hand that I would use to play Road Rash. And that was about it for me in video games. And I would just do that to procrastinate doing uh, schoolwork. Uh, I was going to the junior college at the time. And my video game trajectory, which needs an episode uh, of its own, and we'll get one eventually, started off um, when I was a single-digit age kid playing arcade video games. Um, I had, then I had an Atari 2600, which I was obsessed with, um, eventually moved on to the Nintendo entertainment system, the original one, which I was also obsessive about. And then, um, the 16 bit era, I started to pull back a little bit. I had the Genesis that I just talked about that I still had when I lived with Ms. Sensational. That was actually my brother's. I think, I don't know how, why, or how I ended up with it. Um, I missed out on the Super Nintendo, the first house I ever moved into out of my parents' house. One of the guys that lived there did have a Super Nintendo, but it wasn't mine, so I didn't bond with it quite as much as I would have had it been my own system. Um, And then by the time we were getting to um, the original PlayStation, the Nintendo 64, like I said, I I was pretty much checked out of home consoles. But one day on TV, um, I didn't have cable either at the time. I must have been over at my parents' house or something or maybe a friend's house. I saw a TV commercial for Final Fantasy VII, and I was just totally blown away by what I saw. It was this game with these, like... um, The graphics were not realistic in the sense of being uh, photorealistic, because I don't even really like that in video games that much, but... uh, uh, just this really um, high definition for the time, stylized uh, kind of anime graphics depicting a sort of Blade Runian, uh, if that's a word, world, which is that's kind of my wheelhouse when it comes to uh, science fiction settings. Um, guy with a huge sword um, driving around on a motorcycle in a, in a dark science fiction urban environment. And I was like, what is this game? I got to play this. So um, that led me to um, buying a PlayStation, which had not been on my radar in my plans at all, and um, just hunkering down with that game and spending a lot of time with it. And um, Ms. Sensational, who isn't even a, that big of a video game player, she got really into it. She got more into it than I did. Like, I played it um, quite a bit. I didn't understand at the time just how much level grinding was required and how many... Um, I, uh, optional quests and side quests you would need to do to be powerful enough to beat the boss at the end of the game. But she got full bore into that. You know, she got like all the the knights of the round materia and all all these other crazy uh, attacks that I hadn't gotten. And she was able to beat the game. I didn't actually beat the game. I got to the final boss and I was not strong enough to beat him. And I kind of slinked away and, and did not beat the game. But she beat Final Fantasy VII. Um, so for both of us, it was it was a very um, uh, formative game, formative artistic experience, and it, it got me to buy a PlayStation. And um, since then, as the years have gone on, I, I've been back into gaming. It's kind of sad thinking about it now because I realized at that time, 20 years ago, when I bought that PlayStation, I was like, that's it. I'm recommitting to video games. I'm playing every game that comes out for this system. I'm an adult now. I can buy anything I want. I'm going to keep on top of it. And I've probably played like five games in their entirety since. <laughs> and every every new system, it's like, this is the one. I just got a PlayStation 4 recently. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking with this. I'm keeping up on top of it. And the, the truth is there's just not enough, not enough hours in the day. So I'm just going to be happy playing the odd game here or there that I enjoy. Uh, just kind of live with that and kind of leave my completionist tendencies, my OCD tendencies to the side and try to be a better person and just have fun with the games I can actually get to. But anyway, um, 
Yeah, so not only did Final Fantasy draw me back into the world of consoles, but it reaffirmed for me, and this is my own personal preferences, your mileage may vary, I am a Japanese console guy to the core. For me, playing video games at home is not playing video games at home, it's quote-unquote playing Nintendo. And I know it might not be on a Nintendo anymore, but since... um, the advent of the Nintendo Entertainment System from that point on, to me, console gaming is synonymous with Japanese gaming. It's what I'm drawn to. It's the style of game I like. I know even back when Final Fantasy VII came out, there were people that were complaining about it because it's too linear and it's not open world and you have to do this. But see, that it's going back to what I was saying about wrestling, I need that emotional involvement. I need that emotional investment. I need to be controlling a character that I know, that, that has a face, that has a name. I don't go for this whole like kind of Bethesda a uh, video game where you're just a, a faceless dude who could be anyone and the dialogue that he or she has with other people is totally o- open-ended and generic and not specific to a character. I need character motivation. I want to be I want to be um in the body of this character helping guide them through their world in the way that they would act and the way that they would respond to people. I even do that with more open-ended games that I do like, like Grand Theft Auto. I don't just play Grand Theft Auto willy-nilly and just like run people over. I I try to play within the parameters of what I think the character would do or how I think the character would behave. And again, that goes probably to my more obsessive side of my personality, but that's just, that's what does it for me with games. Final Fantasy reaffirmed that for me. Um, uh, Japanese consoles, Ichiban. Um, Yeah, so... Just wanted to throw that out there. Happy birthday, Final Fantasy VII. Um, hopefully your re- remake will be coming out at some point because that's pretty much why I bought a PlayStation 4. Now, with that out of the way, we will take a brief break, hear a word from our sponsors, and come back with more discussion about my history as a fan of popular music on the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. <laughs> Tune in to the Toys R Us report for your weekly dose of pop culture talk that's out of this world. Movies, TV, toys, comics and more every Wednesday on the IC Robots radio network at icrobots.com. What are you waiting for? It's time to get down or come up. Listening to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. No one does it better. 
That is right, long overdue, no playing games or being used, something to prove it's more than just a dream come true. We have waited far too long for this moment to arrive, and so we're finally going to get down to business here on the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. There is indeed no stopping us as we finally get to the heart of today's episode, episode four, where we are going to continue talking about my history as a fan of popular music, a conversation we started last time, a conversation where you're going to continue this time. So when last we spoke, I talked about kind of my earliest memories of being interested in popular music, about going down to Los Angeles and seeing MTV for the first time at my cousin Jennifer's house, about becoming very interested in the band Twisted Sister um, and Motley Crue and other 80s hair metal bands that I saw on MTV and uh, whose records I listened to kind of from a distance at a friend's uh, house, records that belonged to his older brother. Um, I guess the takeaway uh, that I talked about somewhat last time with that kind of music is although I was very interested in it, it's not as if I sat around listening to it all the time because I, at that stage of the game, at that age, I didn't really have a means of purchasing or listening to my own music. I didn't have my own uh, tape player, record player, any kind of stereo. There was the family stereo system. Um, I didn't really, this was kind of, you know, it was early elementary school, so it was kind of before I really had much of an allowance to speak of or did much shopping of my own. And I, I don't even think it really occurred to me that I could, purchase music. Um, I, I was still kind of getting my sea legs there with understanding how how the world of commerce works, I suppose. So while I was very taken, as I had said, with hair metal, um, and while that interest never went away, and while that continued to be kind of a primary, um, primary part of my aesthetic worldview, you know, I was young. I was in second or third grade, um, I believe, and um, attention span wasn't uh, that great. And so I quickly kind of, um, it's not that I moved away from the metal music that I liked, but I started to just pick up on other kinds of popular music that was out there at the time. And uh, I started to realize when I, my mom would be driving me around to Tascadero, California, where we lived to go to swim lessons or do various errands and stuff like that, you know, the radio would be on. And this was a chance to listen to more popular music that was out there. And um, I started to hear more things that kind of appealed to me and started to capture my imagination and my interest. And so uh, at this point, a lot of these memories are kind of a stream of consciousness jumble to me. So I might have some of the chronology mixed up. But um, from looking back a little bit to some of the dates for the songs and albums I was talking about last time, like uh, Twisted Sisters' Stay Hungry and Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil, I think a lot of these memories are from like the 84 or 85 range. Um, but so yeah, some of the songs that I started to hear driving around with my mom um, that stand out in my memory, I remember hearing a lot of um, the Cars song, Drive, and I remember being very impressed that the band's called The Cars, and they have a song called Drive, imagine that. Um, that song stood out for me. Uh, Billy Idol seemed to be on the radio quite a bit at that time, and I really liked Billy Idol. I really liked uh, the Prince song, um, When the Doves Cry. Um, and kind of the uh, a common ground with some of those songs, particularly the Billy Idol songs and Prince, was that um, my mom was super disapproving of those guys and those songs. I remember we'd be we'd be driving around and like uh, you know Rebel Yell would come on and my mom would be like, oh this guy's a jerk, 
And I couldn't quite understand what her problem was with him or with Prince or other artists like that. And looking back, I think she was taking issue with the fact that, you know, a lot of those songs are pretty innuendo laden and um, usually from a pretty like macho perspective of objectifying women and et cetera, et cetera, which is it's kind of part and parcel for rock and roll music. But I didn't really understand that at the time. All I understood was there was something edgy about these songs and something that was kind of forbidden. So I ended up kind of internalizing that and on one hand was kind of freaked out by this music and felt um, like if I was listening to it, I was doing something wrong. But at the same time, that just kind of increased my morbid fascination and I wanted to listen to it more. So um, I it, this was really the, at the time when I decided, you know, I got to figure out my own way to start listening to music on my own. So I'm not just having to like sneak a listen while my mom's getting mad about these guys in the car. I got I to figure out how to delve into this stuff deeper. So somewhere along the line, I ended up with kind of a little stereo for my room. And I think it might have been like a hand-me-down from a neighbor or a relative or something because it was a pretty antiquated sort of turntable uh, AM, FM radio deal. Um, but I set it up in my room and I couldn't believe that I actually had this. I was like, you know, it, it didn't occur to me. Like it, a kid can have his own stereo. This is amazing. So I was pretty excited to get this set up. And I remember the first day I set it up in my room, uh, my mom had kind of come in to check on me. And um, then she left. And so, God, thank God she's gone. So I'm going to turn this thing on now. So I tuned into the local FM pop uh, station that I recognized uh, the call letters of from uh, driving around with my mom in the car. And the first song that came on, it, which is funny because I, I was just thinking about this today when I was thinking back. And I don't think I have heard this song since. And I had sort of forgotten the song existed. It's a pretty god-awful song, to be perfectly honest, but it was also apropos to be the maiden voyage for my forbidden music listening. Um, it was a song which, um, when I looked it up now, it appears to be by Glenn Frey, who is that, he's like an Eagles guy or something. I don't know. That's not kind of out of my area of expertise. But uh, it's a song called Sexy Girl by Glenn Frey. And... Uh, this song was the first thing that just happened to be playing on the radio when I turned this thing on for the first time, just after my mom had walked out of the room. And at that point in time, I did not know what the term sex or sexy meant, but I was pretty sure it had something to do with what my mom didn't like about this kind of music in general. And I was also pretty sure that this word was like the word of all words behind all the words that were considered uh, off-color or forbidden or not okay. So I was like, wow, when you have your own stereo in your own room, that's when they really lay the extreme stuff on you. So um, like I said, I didn't know precisely what sex meant or what that was, but I was at that age where little hints were starting to trickle in and like, this song also had the word girl in it, so it had something to do with girls. And I knew there was this idea of people having girlfriends. And, uh, you know, maybe that was something I would do someday, but I didn't really know why or how. But then again, I was sort of curious about it. So anyway, this song came on, and I was listening to it, maybe doing some head bobbing, starting to get down, and uh, listening to the lyrics. And um, I'm looking up the lyrics right now, and <laughs> they're a, a, a doozy. Where'd they go here? So yeah, um, there's there's a, uh, a part in the song where he's talking about um, he, he's imagining um, 
like basically harassing this sexy girl and um, she, he's going to tell her she's the finest he's ever seen and she'd look into his eyes, but then he realizes he's holding on to a dream. And I misheard this as holding on to a tree. And I was like, dang, that poor guy, man, he really thought he'd, he'd, he'd got a girlfriend or something, but it turned out it was just a tree. So yeah, I, th- I, I actually think that that would have worked better in this song. But anyway, as I'm sitting there, as I'm like bobbing my head, as I'm picturing making out with a tree, um, my mom comes back in the room and I just freaked out and ran across the room and almost knocked the whole stereo over trying to turn the thing off. And she was just like, what are you doing? I don't think she'd heard what I was listening to or I, quite frankly, she pro- also probably if she had, she wouldn't care. I'd built this up into a much larger issue in my own mind. But that was uh, day one of being a stereo owning individual with the ability to listen to my own music at my leisure. So I spent a lot of time hanging out in my room, listening to my radio, getting familiar with what was on the pop FM uh, airwaves at the time. Um, But then something happened um, that just kind of furthered my um, music history, my music landscape um, even more, as I um, found out about Michael Jackson. And I think I might have known who Michael Jackson was. I might have heard about him before, but... He really came front and center into my imagination one night when my parents and I were visiting some friends, and um, it was a couple that had a daughter and a son, and uh, the husband of the couple, if I remember correctly, his name was Paul, Um, he was into records. He had a record collection, and my parents had some records, and mostly kind of relics from the 60s and 70s, but this guy also had the same kind of records my parents had, but he was still keeping up with with current music. And um, so I remember he was uh, all fired up to get them to listen to Michael Jackson. And I'm looking here in the Michael Jackson Thriller record, which was the record um, um, that was uh, being listened to at this this gathering, uh, had actually come out in 1982. And I think these memories had to have been from like at at least 83 if not 84 you know it's probably just the album had been out for a while but this guy was just hopped up about it and I'm seeing the thriller video itself was 83 so it's some it's all happening somewhere around around that range but um, I remember first of all I was really impressed by this guy because my parents just have records and they were just kind of thrown onto a bookshelf whatever but this guy had like a kind of meticulously categorized uh, collection and Michael Jackson was in the Motown section and I was like what's Motown um, so he was trying to get my parents excited on the record and I don't know how into it they were cause that's not really their kind of music. But then he also showed us, um, the thriller video itself. I don't know if it was, if he had a, somehow had a copy of it. I guess this was in the early days of VHS tapes. Um, but yeah, he either had a copy of it or it just happened to be on TV, but it wasn't just the video. It was like the big, long, like making of version of it. And, you know, I, as everyone who saw that thriller video back then, I was just blown away. I mean, even my parents, who I don't think they uh, give or take the music, I, they were pretty impressed by the video too. And so I thought, you know, I've been listening to all this stuff that's pretty cool, but this, I mean, I, I don't, I can't remember if they called him the king of pop at that time. That might have come later, but. It, Either way, he was just presented with so much hype and so much fanfare. I was just like, well, this is like the penultimate. This is like the highest level of this popular music. And, you know, they didn't play him a lot on the radio at the time, too. So that 
kind of gave it even more of an air of um, exclusivity to me. It's like, this guy's obviously super popular, but it's not like I hear him 24-7. He's a little harder to access, a little harder to get. So I became very interested in Michael Jackson, and his whole manner of dress was really exciting to me. Um, and I started trying to uh, get as much Michael Jackson uh, intel and merch that I could possibly get my hands on. And I, I think at the time, the Victory Tour was going on, the tour where he got back together with his brothers and they did, did this huge world tour. And in fact, I, yeah, I'm looking at it right here. That was 84. So it's definitely around this time period. Somehow I got like a, a program from the Victory Tour. Someone knew that I'd gotten into Michael Jackson and gave it to my parents and I got a hold of it and um, just really poured over that. Um, and uh, I got a Michael Jackson t-shirt. And I wanted to start dressing like him as much as I could. So I wanted a jacket, like um, that red leather jacket that he wore. Um, but of course, I didn't quite end up with that. I ended up with a members-only jacket um, that was kind of maroon, but close enough for me at the time. I also got a pair of what they used to call parachute pants. Um, and parachute pants, they were these kind of nylon material pants that were popular in the 80s. And I don't even know that Michael Jackson actually wore them, but somehow I think I saw them at a store with my mom and they looked Michael Jackson-y to me. So I convinced her to uh, let me buy a pair. But they were weird because like you couldn't wash them. And uh, so I, I was like, I wanted to wear them every day, but then I also like didn't want to wear them because I didn't want to wreck them. And, you know, so I a constant tug of war between do I want to look cool or do I want to preserve these things in my room forever? And I think I did wear them and I ended up blowing out the knees pretty quick. Um, but in the process of getting these clothes, in particular the pants, I somehow came across the idea that these clothes were associated with breakdancing. And I think at the time, a lot of people compared or associated Michael Jackson with breakdancing. And I don't even know that you would call what Michael Jackson did breakdancing, but breakdancing was kind of coming into its own at that time. And I think just a lot of like random suburban dwellers would just kind of conflate the two things. But anyway, somehow it got on my radar that there was this thing called breakdancing out there and that it was similar to what Michael Jackson was doing in his video. So I was like, all right, well, hey, I'm going to become a breakdancer. So step one in that quest to become a breakdancer was to head on over to the local bookseller there in Atascadero, California. And now this is a funny thing. As, as I'm stopping to think about this, um, I was a fairly avid reader when I was a youth, and I definitely recall buying a lot of books when we lived in Atascadero, in particular a lot of kind of choose-your-own-adventure style and uh, gaming books, which I'm going to talk about in the future here on the show um, but weirdly, I can't remember what the bookstore was in Atascadero. I, I remember going to a small bookstore that had a lot of paperback books, but I can't remember the name of the store. Um, so that's unfortunate because I, I do like to have uh, background details on these things. But in any case, I went to the bookseller. I found a book about breakdancing. It was a purple paperback book that had a picture of a couple guys um, like in an urban setting sort of doing some moves on the front cover. And, you know, it was like the Idiot's Guide to Breakdancing. I mean, it wasn't called that, but it predated, like, Dummies uh, Guides and all that. But it, it was essentially this little pocketbook for, like, you know, everything the suburban dweller needs to know about breakdancing. I bought this book, and I started pouring over it. And it's funny because the book, I was expecting there to be a lot of uh, references to Michael Jackson and such, but that certainly was not referenced at all in this book. This book uh, started off talking about the history of East Coast hip-hop music. In particular, it was talking about Africa, Bambada, and who else is there? Like, is there like a cool Herc guy or something? But 
it's funny because I was reading these books and was talking about how these guys kind of like brought this new style of music um, into New York City and and as part of that music as part of that culture this this method of dancing break dancing kind of emerged and became popular and when I was reading this book I felt like I was reading the Bible or something like it felt like these references to Africa Bambata or referencing this mythical figure that had come down to the land thousands of years before but in, in all reality it, it was probably like you know two or three years prior <laughs> maybe a little more than that I can't remember exactly what his vintage was but certainly it was like within the last uh, decade when I was reading the book but in any case I read the book <clears throat> um, it, uh, I mean it didn't really resonate that much with me as a I wasn't even a suburban user Tascadero was like a hick town so I couldn't really relate or understand a lot of what it was talking about I was expecting it to be more of a how-to guide as to how to break dance and um, how to get in on the break dancing scene. And it, it did have a little bit of cursory information about that. Um, in particular, it kept referencing the idea of a ghetto blaster, which was a term for one of those big, oversized, uh, portable tape deck stereo systems. And I became convinced that the turntable stereo system I had used to listen to Sexy Girl and other FM hits was no longer going to cut it. I needed to get myself one of these ghetto blasters. And so I proceeded to begin haranguing my parents about wanting one. And one thing led to another and eventually August rolled around and it was my birthday. And for my birthday that year, I received a Sony portable tape deck with a speaker on either side, stereo tape deck. And uh, in my mind, it was a ghetto blaster. I, in my mind, it was uh, similar to that thing that the guy had and do your do the right thing. You know, the love-hate rings guy, his name's escaping me at the moment, but that huge stereo he had. But in reality, I think it was just like this tiny little boom box. But uh, I was convinced, you know, I had my ghetto blaster. It was time to start breakdancing. So my plan was to with my Ghetto Blaster um, and armed with a cassette copy of Thriller, which I can't remember how I came by, but I did have one. I was going to start practicing my moves, and then somehow I knew, um, I think I must have seen this uh, previously, um, there in Atascadero there was a lake. I think it was just called Atascadero Lake. It was this really gnarly lake that... Um, I remember wading into it in the summer and there was just like goose or duck crap like all encrusted around the bank of the lake. And so you'd be like your feet would be squishing through this green matter as you'd be going into the murky water. And uh, Atascadero Lake had a gazebo out there. It was kind of park. It must have been like kind of central or downtown, whatever approximated a, a downtown in Atascadero. And um, I think there were a few local youth used to break dance out there at the gazebo. So I was gonna I was gonna practice up, and then I was gonna go down there and stake my own claim out of the gazebo with the with the other uh, break dancing youth. And um, I figured though I needed to mix it up a little bit. It wasn't enough just to have Thriller. I mean Thriller at that point. I mean as much as I loved Michael Jackson, everyone had Michael Jackson. You know I needed I needed to dig a little bit deeper. Um, and so uh, I found out that in downtown Atascadero, there was a music store, a record store. And I ended up getting my parents to take me there. And uh, I had also caught wind of the fact that there had been a few recent major motion pictures, among them uh, one called Breakin' and one called Beat Street. And uh, I had not seen either of these movies. I still haven't ever seen either of these movies. But I remember kids at school kind of starting to talk about them a bit. And I, I obviously, I figured if there's a movie called Breakin' and it's about breakdancing, it is, you know, the, the pinnacle 
of all things breakdancing. I didn't realize at the time that oftentimes once things get to that level where there's a Hollywood movie made about them, you're actually seeing uh, a um, kind of a copy of a copy of a copy derivative. But to me, I thought, well, if there's anything that one is going to go out there and bust a move to, it is the soundtrack to breaking. Because what could be more breakdancing than that? So I went to the music store, and the music store was called Cheap Thrills. And at that time, I was also aware of the band Cheap Trick. And so for some reason, I kind of conflated Cheap Trick with Cheap Thrills. And I became convinced that Cheap Thrills was a record store operated by the band Cheap Trick. Although I, for some, I think I thought they were called Cheap Thrills. Or there was some connection between the two. And that the band lived and operated out of Pescadero, California. Don't ask me why. I was big on making these kind of bizarre connections out of nothing when I was a kid. But in my mind, that's what the deal was. So went into Cheap Thrills. And, uh, you know, I was like, you know, this is it. I, I've, I've kind of ascended. I've gone from, you know, just a, a kid that wanted to be into music, but didn't even have a way of listening to it in my room, to having a way of listening to it in my room, but not having a lot of control over it, to now i got my own MF and Ghetto Blaster, and I'm here in a store that sells a bunch of tapes, and I'm going to buy myself a tape that I want to listen to. So I proceeded to stride down the aisle, looking at some tapes, perusing, and all of a sudden I heard, hey kid, kid, you can't be back there, get out from behind the counter. And I realized that where I thought I was just walking along an area where you were allowed to look at tapes, I was actually behind the cash wrap area where they stored tapes. And I was completely mortified, angry at the clerk for yelling at me, angry at myself for, for being such a fool, for blowing my moment here as I was, I was just about to take the grand stage of uh, being a cool music buying dude. And it's one of, one of those moments where God only knows if that clerk is still alive today, but I still feel mortified thinking back at that. But anyway... Uh, quickly moved back around from behind the cash wrap and I found a copy of the break-in soundtrack and I purchased my copy of the break-in soundtrack and I went home and I put it in my ghetto blaster and I found a pair of plastic Batman sunglasses. They were um, sunglasses with yellow frames and a Batman sticker in the center uh, of the eyes. And I put that on. I put on an orange terry cloth headband and two matching orange terry cloth wristbands. Um, and I proceeded to listen to the break soundtrack, which I kind of expected to be kind of more hardcore hip hop. And I'm sort of weirded out that it was this kind of like uh, 80s movie uh, getting it done montage soundtrack type stuff. But I guess that's kind of appropriate since uh, it's a soundtrack for an 80s movie. But uh, anyway, I figured, hey, I figured that this is this is hardcore break music. What am I going to do? So I proceeded to bust moves that uh, um, it's going to be hard to kind of describe this. This would be nice to have a visual component of this uh, moment. But I, I did the old move, the King Tut thing, where I had my hands up next to my head facing in one uh, direction. And then, like, I'd move my hands and my head in the, in the other direction and kind of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then I'd do the, the kind of, like, wave thing where I'd start with my arm moving, like, as if, as if there was an electric current going through it, then through my body, then out through the other arm. And I figured, you know, I think I'm, I'm good to go. I'm ready to go. So the next time my mom took me to Atascadero Lake, I came equipped with my ghetto blaster, my Batman sunglasses, my terry cloth headband and wristbands, and... Um, I proceeded to stride up to the gazebo where uh, there was a group of dudes uh, blasting music and breakdancing, probably very poorly. Uh, I can't imagine it was uh, a quality performance given our <laughs> geography and demographic. But um, I walked up and I remember 
remember kind of a group of kids. In my mind, it's like this big group, but it's probably like four or five kids. And I don't even remember any of the members of the group. All I remember is the ringleader. And the ringleader was this guy that kind of looked like Brandon, the older brother from the Goonies. Um, same kind of headband, same kind of like workout gear. Um, and it's funny, as a weird little aside, I was looking up the Goonies Wikipedia page because I wanted to remember the older brother's uh, name. I thought it was Brandon, and I was right. But then I kind of went down the Wikipedia uh, rabbit hole of um, Josh Brolin, the actor that played Brandon, and um, I just happened to notice, uh, it says here, he was born in Santa Monica, California, and he was raised on a ranch in Templeton, California. And the weird thing about that is Templeton was a town, um, a small town near Atascadero. And it was actually the town that earlier I talked about the couple that my parents were friends with where the guy's name was Paul who had uh, the Thriller record. That's where they lived. It was in Templeton. So see everything? <laughs> it's all interconnected, man, here on the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. Um, yeah, I, I laugh sometimes thinking back and telling these stories how I would I would wager 99.9% of the characters in these stories that I uh, talk about do not remember me and do not remember these events in the slightest. But somewhere out in the world, there's this weird dude recording this podcast uh, chronicling his um, interactions with them 30 years ago. I don't know, whatever. But um, so I rolled up to the Brandon-looking dude, and I was like, you know, what's up, man? I'm here. I'm ready to break dance. Got my ghetto blaster. And I remember he kind of uh, looked at me, looked at his crew, and was like, check it out. He's got a ghetto blaster. And I remember thinking like, yeah, see, he knows. But, you know, obviously in reality, there was a point of high hilarity that this pipsqueak was uh, trying to pass off his whack uh, Sony uh, tape player as a quote unquote ghetto blaster. So um, he's like, well, you got to wait your turn, bro. You know, like everyone here, everyone, everyone's got their chance to break. So you got to wait till you have your chance. Um, so I sat there for a while watching these other kids do their windmills and uh, do their back spins. And finally, um, he was like, uh, all right, dude, go ahead. It's your turn. So uh, I took my ghetto blaster, put it down in the middle of the gazebo, pressed play on that son of a bee, and um, Michael Jackson came on. I proceeded to do the King Tut thing. I proceeded to do the electricity passing from one point of the body to the other. And I decided to punctuate that with a straight-up backspin, which was more like me just kind of flailing on my back. And got up, and I think my mom was watching. It was like, yay, clapping, which also probably didn't help my cause. Uh, Brandon-looking dude just kind of sneered at me, and it was the next guy's turn. And I went back to, to the ready position, waited through that guy, waited through another guy, waited through everyone. Um, the whole cycle was about to start again, and I was like, to the Brandon guy, um, hey, do I get another turn? And he was like, dude, you don't get any more turns. Get the F out of here. You suck. And so I proceeded to take my ghetto blaster, give them all a stare of death, and under my breath, I quoted my man Vincent Price, told them I hoped they'd all rot inside a corpse's shell. Then I walked a few yards over away from the gazebo and proceeded to bust my own one-man breakdancing show to the applause of my mom and a few senior citizens in attendance. So take that, Brandon-looking fool. Who's laughing now? And I think after that, I had a few follow-up visits to Tascadero where I bypassed the gazebo and much like how this last visit ended up, just kind of did my own show for some old folks uh, in a patch of dirt off on my own... Uh, 
on my own sphere, on my own plane, just doing things my own way as Mr. Sensational Gino Vega is wont to do. Um, and then pretty quickly proceeded to lose interest in breakdancing. And I still listened to Michael Jackson for a while. Um, but I, that just, I guess, kind of faded into just kind of overall 80s popular culture interest. It stopped being, it's not that I stopped listening to Michael or stopped liking him. It just, much like uh, the earlier hair metal, it just kind of all receded into a general 80s-ness um, that kind of defined my childhood. And um, for whatever reason, I, it's funny because I did have that tape player and I did have that one incident when I went out and bought my own tape, but I, I didn't really hit that up again for years. Um, after Michael Jackson, I don't, you know, I, I kept listening to the radio, but music kind of stopped being a primary thing for me. Kind of went back to my old mainstays of action figures and professional wrestling and Saturday morning cartoons. And music didn't really ratchet up again for me until, um, a couple years later when we'd moved to Santa Rosa, California, where I live now. And I think I'm going to finish off today's episode just on this last, uh, tangent here, and then we can move on to kind of more formative music for me um, in the next episode. But yeah, music was kind of dormant for me until about 86. And 86 was a a pivotal year for me in a lot of ways. Um, It's when I really full bore got into wrestling. Um, That's when I really full bore got into comic books. But I do remember um, I kind of got the itch to get into music again and just wondered what I should get into, how I should go about deciding what kind of music to listen to. And for whatever reason, I was going through some of my parents' uh, records, and most of their records were really lame, kind of like Linda Ronstadt-type crap and other other kind of 70s popular music. But I they did have several Beatles records. And for whatever reason, I started to get really taken with the Beatles. And that was the first time... Um, you know, honestly, I think part of it was I, I knew that Michael Jackson had kind of a weird relationship with the Beatles. Didn't he? Like, he owned their songs, their back song catalog or something. But anyway, the Beatles were really – it was the first time where I thought of um, music that I was interested in. I had the idea that here was a, here was a, a group that, whose popularity and whose catalog persisted for, for years, for decades really. Um, and uh, – that was kind of of interest to me. Like this, this was a real hardcore group that endured artistically. I think it was the first music I was listening to where it's like, this isn't just some eighties thing. Like these guys were around for a while. People were into them. Then people are still into them now. So I started to read up about the Beatles and there was a lot of mystique around the Beatles. And so that was of interest to me too. There, you know, just the, the fact that all kinds of weird stuff with them, like they were so popular, but they didn't even play live for a large portion of their career. And, um, just kind of how each guy had his own mythology that he brought to the group, but then it all kind of formed like Voltron, and they were all in. So the the individual parts became part of a greater uh, whole. That really appealed to me, and that would continue to appeal to me down the road with other bands, other groups. So I got into the Beatles. I started reading a lot about them. I started kind of collecting Beatles memorabilia, um, more like books about Beatles memorabilia. And um, for one birthday, I ended up getting a box set of all the UK Beatles vinyl releases. And that was my first real, the beginning of a vinyl collection. I had all the UK uh, Beatles records. And I'm pretty sure I got that set um, that birthday 
I was turning 11. It would have been 1987, and it was on the eve of my attending the school that I went to for sixth grade, uh, the school Matanzas Elementary, which I talked about in episode two, Failures in Skateboarding. Um, we had just moved to a new house, um, and yeah, I was getting ready to start a new school. And uh, I remember spending a lot of days at late summer there leading up to school starting, um, just in my room listening to those Beatles records. Um, at that point, I had a stereo system set up. It wasn't that first one I started with, but I had a tape deck and a, a turntable, and I could plug some headphones into it. And I'd listen to those records, and I was a big fan. Pretty much The Revolver and Rubber Soul records, those were my two favorites. I was terrified of the White Album. I can't, can't stand that record to this day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Helter Skelter song freaks me out with its um, associations with Charles Manson, and then I can't deal with that weird um, freaking Revolution Number no. Nine, scary descent into hell uh, nightmare song. But as we're finishing up here, I, I guess what I want to say about the Beatles because um, they're weird. I, it wasn't. It was a really intense moment in my musical history, but it didn't last long. In fact, I can't stand the Beatles today. Um, but um, two major moments I had with the Beatles. One was with that record that I said was one of my favorites, the Revolver record. There was one day when I was in my room that late summer listening to the song Eleanor Rigby. And up to that point, um, death hadn't really occurred to me. I'm sure I'd thought about it before. And I had, uh, I lived through my grandfather dying. Um, but just kind of the finality and certainty of death hadn't really occurred to me until I was listening to that song. And there's the bit about um, the priest writing a sermon for someone and no one comes to listen to it. And I just had this epiphany where I was like, oh my God, I'm going to die. And when I die, it's over. Um, I think the best way of describing it, my oldest daughter, uh, Miss Sensational One had a similar epiphany. She had hers earlier than I did, but I remember she came running up to me one day and she was like, someday I'm going to die and I'm never going to be in the real world again. And that's basically the the same epiphany that I had. And um, so I always associate that with that Beatles song now, whenever I think about death. Cheery topic here on the Mr. Sensational Joe Vega podcast. But that was a pivotal moment that the Beatles were the soundtrack for, for me. And there was another one I was trying to think of. Oh, I, I remember what it was. It, funnily enough, since the Beatles aren't necessarily, I certainly don't associate them with live music that much since they didn't play live for so long in their career. But uh, they played a, p- a moment for me, which was kind of one of my first moments being around live music and performing live on stage, which would become kind of a hallmark of my life later on. But um at the height of my Beatles popularity, my parents took me to see a group called Rain, which was a Beatles tribute act. Rain being the name of a, a B-side Beatles song um, that I don't think, did that make it onto one of their LPs? I can't remember. I used to know all this trivia, but it's long since lost to the, to the dustbin of moving on to other interests. But uh, anyway, we went to go see this band, Rain, play at local Sonoma State University, which is the college kind of near here near Santa Rosa, and um, Rain was performing, and their gimmick was they came out with um, kind of the early Beatles, you know, plain in suits outfit, and then um, partway through, 
they took an intermission and they came back out in the Sergeant Pepper outfits, which is funny because the Beatles didn't actually play live during that time. But anyway, he, you know, works for the, this tribute band's live gimmick. And then they play songs from that era. Then they leave and they come back one more time. And they're looking like kind of the later stage uh, Beatles, um, kind of let it be era Beatles playing those songs. But um, at one point, they uh, asked a trivia question, and it had something to do with what the B-side was to one of the Beatles singles. And of course, I cannot for the life of me remember the specifics now, but at the time, I totally knew the answer to the question. And in the sea of baby boomer Beatles fans, there was this one kind of 10-year-old kid with his hand raised, and they kind of found that amusing, and they called on me, and I was right. So I got to come up on stage and sit with them, sit on the stage and sing along while they played their next song. I, I think where they, while they played whatever the right answer to that question had been, that B-side song. And and that that was kind of a pivotal moment for me because I'd go on to, to play in bands myself. But that was my first um, experience on the stage facing a crowd, seeing what that was like. So I had a falling out with the Beatles, and maybe that's where we'll pick up uh, next time and then moving on to um, – kind of really the heart of uh, music for me, which was uh, metal and punk in my uh, junior high and high school years. But we're hitting that 60-minute mark here now. So, yeah, that's what we'll pick up next time as we lurch along with my history and music. We're going to start off with my uh, falling out with the Beatles and my moving on to other things. Until then, um, feel free to uh, check out my website. I mentioned at the beginning of the show. I'll mention it one more time genovega.wordpress.com there will be notes for this episode and future episodes over there and after that make sure you check the icrobots.com feed for all of the great shows brought to you by the IC Robots Radio Network uh, the Toys R Us report every Wednesday and, and above and beyond the Toys R Us report not that there's any need to go above and, be, above and beyond that but you gotta go check out um, some of IC Robots This Boring Life shows he just did an amazing one about his uh, history as a bowler and uh, yeah he's doing some great stuff with uh, This Boring Life I think he's got another one coming up too about um, the history of comic book stores in this area here in the Santa Rosa area where we both reside. Um, and on top of that, you can go to supportthereport.com and pledge a dollar or more per month to help us keep these shows going because you know you want to hear more, right? Yeah, who, 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 could, uh, who could live without the scintillating uh, tones of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast in their life? But um, I, I could see you putting down money for the IC uh, robot stuff. <laughs> Anyway, um, until next time, folks, thanks for listening. Thanks for letting me be sensational. Thanks for being sensational with me. The Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. This is Mr. Sensational Gino Vega signing off. What a mess on a ladder of success. Will you take one step and miss the whole first This has been a Joseph S. Mama production on the IC Robots Radio Network. You heard?